You don't really believe the Bible is God's Word, do you? I mean, really? I mean, it's got some decent teaching in it, but please don't tell me you take this book literally. How can you trust it? It's full of contradictions. It was written like a million years ago. It's outdated. It's irrelevant. Do you really believe the Ten Commandments? Seriously? Please don't tell me you believe that there's really a devil and that there's really this place called hell, uh, hell and and the only way to get there is through this guy named Jesus. No, I don't believe it. Not me. I don't trust the Bible. It's probably a big scam anyways. I'm not going to let some old, outdated, irrelevant book like that tell me how to live my life. And quite frankly, I think if you do, I think you might be an idiot. If this is your first time with us, don't leave. <clears throat> that was just an act. I've always wanted to test my acting skills. I think I'll stick to ministry. My name is Kevin. I'm the groups and disciple-making pastor here at Genesis, and how would you respond to someone who made those kinds of comments to you? How would you respond in a conversation like that? As Steve mentioned, we're in week two of our series, Why I'm Not a Christian, and we're trying to answer some of the bigger questions and some of the biggest doubts people have about Christianity, questions like, how can a good God, if God is good, how could he let suffering happen in the world? How could a good God say that there's only one way to heaven? How can Jesus be the only way? Today, I want to address this question with you. Can you really trust the Bible? Can you really trust the Bible? Our culture today has an increasing skepticism about the Bible. And really, skepticism about the Bible is the symptom of a much larger issue that I'm going to briefly touch on. And that bigger issue is the issue of moral relativism. Pastor and author David Platt says, Moral relativism is the anthem and the cry of our culture today. Moral, relativi- moral relativism says this. Moral relativism says there is no absolute truth, but that truth is determined by a culture and its society. And so as the culture develops and as society changes, truth develops and changes. And so truth is relative. Truth is different for everyone in different times and different spaces. There's no truth for everyone. There's no absolute truth. Today, if you claim to have or believe in absolute truth, you can be deemed arrogant, narrow-minded, ignorant, even considered a bigot. The next time someone says to you, well, I believe in absolute, I don't believe in absolute truth. I believe believe truth is relative. I want to give you a question that you can ask them with, you can follow up with. Here's the question you can respond to. Someone says, hey, I don't believe in absolute truth. Are you absolutely certain that that's true? Just ask them that. Because if they're absolutely certain that what they've just stated is true, well, then that's an absolute truth, isn't it? See, the argument about absolute truth, we could spend a whole message or a whole series on the tension between absolute truth and moral relativism, but the, the truth is, absolute truth is a given. So the question we must answer as a church family and we must answer as Christ followers is, where does our source of truth come from? Well, Christianity says it comes from the Bible. Let's look at three passages that describe what the Bible says about itself. And as you read these three passages, I want you to ask yourself, do you believe that these passages are true? Let's look at the first one, 2 Timothy verses th- uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that all Scripture is God-breathed? How about 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20? 
Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible was written by human authors, but it was inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. And so what is written in the Bible is from God. Do you believe that's true? Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is, living, is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. I'll draw your attention to that first phrase, For the Word of God. See, the Bible claims to be the Word of God, the source of absolute truth. And at Genesis Church, I want you to know this. We believe the Bible is God's Word. And that means we believe that the creator of the universe, the one who created you and me and all these beautiful children that were up here this morning, that God is the one who inspired and guided the original writings of everything in the Bible, that the Bible is without error and it is our source of absolute truth. But the question is, do you believe that? Now, you may be thinking, well, why does he keep asking us that question? We're in church on Sunday morning. Well, unfortunately, came across some research a couple of weeks ago by Barna. The Barna group did, some, did a study and found that 50% of individuals in America today who claim to be Christians and regularly attend church, let me say it again, 50% of people who claim to be Christians and regularly attend church in America today do not believe that the Bible is the actual Word of God. As a pastor, as a teacher, and a Christ follower, that's concerning to me. And here's why. Because if that statistic is true, then half of you in this room, half of you this morning, have serious doubts about whether or not the Bible is actually God's Word. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, what's wrong with you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Many of you believe the Bible is God's Word, and it is our source of absolute truth. My question for those of you who do believe is, that, is this. Can you confidently defend why you believe it's true? Parents, can you give a basic explanation and defense of your belief to your children about the Bible? If someone challenges you, maybe a coworker, a neighbor, or a friend or family member, could you give a good defense of why you feel confident that the Bible is God's Word and source of absolute truth? Furthermore, if someone came to you and they had questions and they were trying to seek the Lord and they were, had questions about their faith, could you help answer someone else's questions and help remove the obstacles of, the doubt, of doubt about the Bible? Now, for those of you who do trust that the Bible is God's Word, I hope this message this morning renews your confidence in this, in this book, that it better equips you to not only defend your belief in the Bible, it equips you to help answer the questions of the people in your life who have doubts. I know it's done that for me this last couple of weeks as I've prepared. Some of you, though, this morning, you have doubts about the Bible. You're sitting here and you're going, no, I have, I have some real doubts. I want you to know that's okay. That's okay. This is a safe place. We want you to bring your doubts. Uh, we are happy for you to be here with your doubts. And I want you to know God's not intimidated by your doubts. I hope that this message encourages you today. Because some of you have some sincere questions like, well, is what's written in the Bible uh, really originally what was written 2,000 years ago? It's been 2,000 years ago. How do we know it hasn't been changed? Did the events in the Bible happen as they actually are recorded in there? Couldn't those stories have been fabricated? How do we know they weren't fabricated? Can you really trust the Bible? Some of you have some sincere questions. That's okay. If you have doubts about the Bible, I hope you'll listen to me this morning in the next half hour. About, with an open mind and with an open heart, because I'm going to give you five basic evidences as to why you should trust 
the Bible. Before we dive in and look at those five, would you pray with me? Father, I love you, and I'm so thankful that you loved us and that you demonstrated your love by sending Jesus Christ down the cross for our sins. And you went a step further. You gave us your word. I believe your word is true, and I believe your word is recorded in the Bible. And uh, God, I thank you for that. What a gift. What an amazing gift you've given us in the scriptures. Father, I pray that as uh, those of us in this room, as we listen to this message this morning, I pray you'd speak to us. Lord, if we believe the Bible is true, I pray you'd renew in us uh, a confidence and a hunger to not only uh, defend our faith, but to go deeper in the Word and to share your Word with others. For those of us who are, have doubts, Lord, I pray that this message would address those doubts and maybe remove some of those obstacles. Either way, Lord, I pray that this message ultimately would glorify the name of Jesus. That's in his name we pray. Amen. You look in your notes, number one, evidence number one is the manuscript evidence. The manuscript evidence. The Bible's a book. It's actually a collection of 66 books, 40 different authors written over 1,500 years. And one of the ways to determine the reliability of an ancient document is called the bibliographic test. Now, the bibliographic test examines the quality of the manuscripts that we have. We don't have any of the original New Testament manuscripts. Having said that, we still have incredible manuscript evidence for the accuracy and the reliability of the New Testament. And let me show you why. We're going to look at some of the ancient documents that are still widely and generally accepted as reliable and trustworthy in today's culture. These are documents that scholars still use today in schools. They teach these documents. They use these, these documents uh, continue to influence our world today. I want to compare the manuscript evidence of those widely accepted documents to the manuscript evidence we have of the Bible. So let's look at this slide. Let's start, start in the top left-hand side. Let's look at Plato. Plato's writings were written in 400 B.C. That's when the original Plato's, Plato writings were written. The earliest copies we have of his writings, you're moving to the right, is 895 A.D., Go another, another column to the right. That is a gap of 1,300 years from the time of the original writing until the first copy we have. We have 217 copies of Plato's manuscripts. Now, Plato's writings are still a credible resource in our uh, culture today and still influence our modern views of philosophy. Let's go down the next one. Let's look at Caesar. His Gaelic Wars was written around somewhere between 144 B.C. The earliest copies we have are in the 9th century. That's roughly a 950-year gap between the original text and the copies. We have 251 copies of Caesar. Homer's Iliad was written in 800 B.C. Copies dated to 400 B.C. makes for a 400-year time span. We have 1,800 copies of Homer's Iliad. Now look at the New Testament. Originally written in 58, between 50 A.D. and 100 A.D. The earliest copies we have around are, 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 are around 130 A.D., and some scholars say as early as 125 A.D. That's a span of at worst 50 years and at best of 30 years. How many copies do we have? Well, if you look at just the Greek manuscripts, we have 5,838 manuscripts. manuscripts. Now, which is those, that, that number of manuscripts is far more than any other ancient document we have. But if you add in the earliest New Testament translations and all of our Old Testament scrolls as well, you have a total of over 66,000 biblical manuscripts, the bottom right-hand side of the screen. 66,000. Now, if you were, students, if you were to go into school this week, and I don't recommend you do this, okay? But if you were to go to your high school professor or college professor, and you were to say, hey, I don't believe that we have enough evidence of Homer's Iliad. I don't think it's a trustworthy resource. Your professor would respond saying, of course we do. We have 1,800 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. It's more than sufficient. We have over 66,000 manuscripts of the Bible. 
Let me take one other example. Alexander the Great. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, points out that the earliest biographies we have of Alexander the Great were written more than 400 years after Alexander's, Alexander's death. And yet historians consider that his writings, the writings on Alexander the Great, to be generally trustworthy still today. We know Jesus was put to death somewhere around 30 or 33 A.D., depending on how you measure that. Dr. Craig Bloomberg, the author of Histo The Historical Reliability of the Gospel, says the Gospel of Mark could have been likely written on or, around, on or before 60 A.D. That's a span of, of less than 30 years. Less than 30 years after Jesus died, the first original Gospel was written. Now, Mark's Gospel was greatly influenced by the Apostle Peter, who was obviously an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The whole New Testament itself, not just the Gospels, but the entire New Testament was completed before A.D. 95. That's only 65 years after the death of Jesus. Put this in modern-day context. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in November 1963. That was 53 years ago. In April 1975, the Vietnam War ended. That was 42 years ago. The space shuttle Challenger exploded in January of 1986. That was 31 years ago. The IU men's basketball team last won the NCAA championship in 1987. That was 30 years ago. <laughs> Give it up, people. They're never going to win it again. You might as well start rooting for the Kentucky Wildcats. I'm, absolute, I'm speaking absolute truth here today. <laughs> Email Steve. Um, all of these events are 40, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Some of you in this room are in your 60s or in your 70s, and you can remember, you can remember when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. You remember when the Vietnam War was ended. I remember where I was when the Challenger exploded. Some of the New Testament writers were likely still alive when the original gospel manuscripts were written and being passed around. So here's why that's important. If there was false information in those original manuscripts, it wouldn't have made it out of the generation, just like false information by and large hasn't, hasn't made it out of our generation about JFK or Vietnam or the space shuttle Challenger. Josh McDowell, author of the book Evidence for Christianity, says no other ancient document comes close to the manuscript evidence and the reliability we have of the New Testament. Let's keep moving. Looking at number second, our second piece of evidence, number two, is the historical evidence. Historical evidence. Now, when I say historical evidence, here's what I mean. I basically mean other historical documents that reference uh, the life of Jesus other than New Testament manuscripts. Dr. Gary Habermas, who wrote The Historical Jesus, has identified and done research on 39 other ancient sources outside of the New Testament that document the life of Jesus. That's 39 other sources that refer to this man from Nazareth who changed the world. Now, Professor Edwin Yamauchi, a, a history professor at Miami University, says it's quite impressive in terms of how much we can learn about Jesus outside of the New Testament. When asked, what could we include if you gathered all of the other uh, documents that uh, reference the life of Jesus outside of the New Testament, what do those documents teach us? Dr. Yamauchi says, well, we can summarize it in seven basic truths about this historical Jesus, this Jesus described by these other 39 sources. Yamauchi says, first, these sources tell us that Jesus was a Jewish teacher. Number two, these sources tell us that, the, that many people believed he, had, he performed healings or exorcisms. Third, some people believed that he was a Messiah. Fourth, these other sources tell us that he was rejected by the Jewish leaders of his day. Fifth, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Sixth, that despite his shameful death, 
his followers, who believed that he was alive, spread beyond Palestine so that there were a multitude of believers from about this, uh, and followers of this guy named Jesus throughout Rome by A.D. 64. Seventh, all kinds of people from the cities and countryside, men and women, slave and free, worshipped this guy from Nazareth as God. That's what all the other resources say about Jesus. Dr. Yamauchi goes on to say this, the fact is that we have better historical documentation for Jesus than the founder of any other ancient religion. Number three, third category of evidence, the archaeological evidence. A little over 30 years after Jesus died, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he gave an explanation as to why he wrote it. It's found in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Read this with me. Luke says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Pause. Pa- Luke is getting ready to write the Gospel of Luke. He's getting ready to write an account of everything he's investigated. What did he investigate? Everything from the beginning. He was investigating all of the claims about Jesus throughout his day. Luke was not an eyewitness. And so as a doctor, he was going to go do the research himself. And so he says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. We're going to come back to that carefully investigated. He says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, a leader in his day, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So Luke says, goes to Theophilus and says, listen, you've been taught about this guy named Jesus. I've done the research. I've written an orderly account so that you can trust that what's being said is true. Luke was a doctor, and he carefully investigated all the claims of Christ that were being circulated around. In the book of Acts, Luke's carefully investigated. Listen to this. In the book, he, so Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke also was the author of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Luke's names 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 islands, and he lists hundreds of details about the world in which the New Testament was written. Why? Because he was trying to show the evidence of what was being said was true. Let me give you just one example of an archaeological evidence from Luke, the author of Luke. It's found in Acts chapter 27. Remember, Luke is the author of Acts. In Acts chapter 27, Luke wrote that the ship on which Paul was sailing, the apostle Paul was sailing, was caught in a ferocious storm, and it ran aground off the coast of the island of Malta. And in order to lighten the ship, we're told in the scriptures that they cast the cargo overboard, including the ship's four anchors. Well, in 2003, Robert Cornook published a book titled The Lost Shipwreck of Paul. Cornook and his companions went searching for those four anchors. They studied Luke's description. They used Luke's description to try to find these anchors. Listen to how it reads here in Acts chapter 27, verse 28 and 29. This is Luke writing, talking about Paul and everybody on that ship. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. They're saying, hey, how how close are we to the shore? Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Look what happens next. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. That's the biblical account in the Gospel of Luke. Now, when Cornuk and his companions went searching for those four anchors, they calculated that what Luke was describing here in this passage is what now is now St. Thomas Bay in Malta. So just off the coast, in 30 feet of water, they discovered four ancient Roman anchors just as Luke has described. Here's a picture of one of them. Listen, the archaeological evidence is overwhelming. There are many other examples of archaeological support. 
That's one. Let me give you just one more, okay? This one's in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, the apostle John describes a pool in Jerusalem by the sheep gate called in Hebrew Bethsaida, which has five porticos. Let's look at it for ourselves. John chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. So now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people lie. Uh, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, do you want to get well? So Jesus, so John is writing an account of a real event that happened. He's saying Jesus one day was walking into Jerusalem and he stopped at this pool and there was a man lying there. You can go in John 5 and study that passage about the interaction between Jesus and this guy. Well, for centuries, there was no evidence of John, of outside of John's gospel for such a place or for, the, for this pool. And so for years, cr- critics questioned the reliability of John's gospel. They said, well, his gospel can't be trusted. We, they're, they're, we can't find this pool. We've looked all over Jerusalem. Then in the 1930s, God showed up. An archaeologist discovered a pool in Jerusalem. And when they uncovered the pool, it had five colonnades, just as John described it. Here's a picture of it. What you're looking at is from the edge up on the ground looking down into the pool. And if you see the columns on the right side, kind of right side of the picture, those are five colonnades. You can count them. There's the pool. It's right outside Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, I've seen that with my own eyes. I've had the privilege of going to Israel twice, and I've seen that up close and personal. In fact, it's a surprise to me that our, when you get over there, that no one really doubts the biblical record is authentic or trustworthy. No one really doubts it. Here's a picture of Jerusalem. I love Jerusalem. Uh, I love, it's a picture from standing on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. It was a surprise to me when I got over there, not only that no one doubts that the biblical record is authentic and trustworthy, but they go so far as that both are tour guides. I went twice, first time with my wife, a couple years later went by myself and another group, and both tour guides, Israeli tour guides, Jewish tour guides, they use two primary texts as their source of guide when they give tours. One is a book written by first century Jew- a Jewish historian and scholar named Josephus. The second book they use is the Bible. They use the Bible as their text because it's trustworthy. Here's a picture of my wife and I at the Sea of Galilee. I love the Sea of Galilee. Such a beautiful, beautiful uh, a spot. Here's a, a, the next photo. Um, I, look at, isn't that beautiful? That's the Sea of Galilee. I took that photo. (laughs) Acting doesn't work out. Maybe I'll go into photography. Here's what I want you to know. The Bible is not a bunch of made-up fairy tale stories. The biblical record is of real people, real places that happen in real time and real space. Dr. Norman Geisler, Christian apologist and author of more than 60 books, says there have been thousands of archaeological finds in the Middle East throughout the years that support the picture in the biblical record. You can trust the archaeological evidence validates that the Bible is trustworthy. So, number one, you have manuscript evidence. Number two, historical evidence. Number three, archaeological evidence. Look at, in your notes, number four is the prophetic evidence. Prophetic evidence. Do you realize that the Old Testament... 
contains over 300 predictions about the coming Messiah and that all of them were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let me list a handful. In Micah 5.2, it predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, predicted the Messiah would have a ministry in Galilee, right there where the Sea of Galilee is. And Zechariah eleven thirteen predicted the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah 53, 12, predicted the Messiah would be crucified with thieves. And most of you know this, but in case you don't, crucifixion was prophesied about here in the Old Testament hundreds of years before the method was ever even invented. Isaiah 53, 9, predict the Messiah would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Psalm 16, 10, predict the Messiah would come back from the grave. And that's just a few of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. The prophetic evidence is overwhelming in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Josh McDowell says the odds of just eight of those Old Testament prophecies, not 300, just eight of those Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in one person's life is one in 100 trillion. That's the chances. Kentucky Derby just ran yesterday. If you're from Kentucky, you know that. If you're not from Kentucky, you probably don't care. But those are really bad odds. Really bad odds. That's the odds of just eight of the prophecies being fulfilled. Let me put this in kind of context for you a little bit. Some of you heard this illustration before. I think it's so powerful. I want you to imagine with me in filling, filling this entire room, this entire room, two feet deep in silver dollars. Can you imagine that? Now imagine filling the entire city of Indianapolis, two feet deep in silver dollars. Just cover the whole city. Two feet deep, silver dollars. Now, let's go a step further. Imagine filling the entire state of Texas. You can fit seven, I think seven or eight Indianas inside the state of Texas. Imagine filling the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Silver dollars. Suppose we mark one of those silver dollars with a red X and we throw it out in the middle of Texas. Now we're going to put you in a helicopter. We're going to blindfold you, fly you over to Texas, and drop you in the middle of it. We'll get pretty close to the ground. And... We're going to drop you in the state of Texas, and you can only pick up one silver dollar. You can only pick up one, and you're blindfolded. The odds of you picking up the silver dollar with the red X is the same odds as one man accidentally fulfilling eight of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Jesus didn't just fulfill eight of them. He fulfilled all 300 plus. Accidental fulfillment of these prophecies is simply beyond the reason of po- or, uh, realm of possibility. It's unbelievable. It is supernatural. Supernatural. So you have manuscript evidence, historical evidence, archaeological evidence, prophetic evidence. Let me give you category number five. I'm calling this the common sense evidence. Now, I made this category up on my own. So if you go Google common sense evidence, you're going to find anything. It's not going to be written in any books. I didn't know what else to call this category, so I just called it the common sense evidence. I want to share some evidence that's a little more intangible, uh, evidence that's a little bit more anecdotal, if you will. But if you consider this common sense evidence and you stack it on top of the other evidences, I think that what happens is this becomes kind of the icing on the cake, if you will. Let me just give you two or three of them. Number one is the Bible just doesn't read like a lie. It just doesn't read like a lie. For instance, heroes in Greek mythology are exaggerated in power. They're exaggerated in their goodness to the point that's obviously imagined. But the main characters of the Bible are presented with these human frailties. They're raw and real, and it's just honest. Noah got drunk. Abraham lied. David committed adultery. Peter denied Jesus. There's this authenticity about the Bible that just can't be denied. It's authentic. It just doesn't read like a lie if you use your common sense. Why would, number two, why would the authors of the New Testament lie about all this? Why would they lie? 
Many skeptics who doubt the Bible say the New Testament writers fabricated all of these stories and teachings about Jesus. That doesn't make any sense at all. You're just throwing common sense out the window. The Apostle Peter addressed this very doubt 2,000 years ago in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. See, 2,000 years ago, people were saying, Oh, you're making these stories up about Jesus. None of this stuff really happened. Peter says, No, we're not making this up. We were eyewitnesses. Why would we make this up? Thirdly, why would they make this up? Let's think about their motivations. Would they get more powerful because, they, because of these stories? No, they didn't get more powerful. Did they get more wealthy? No, there was nothing to their advantage. In fact, it was quite opposite. They proclaimed Christ and stood for it, and things didn't work out in their favor. The New Testament writers and many in the early church suffered great persecution because of their belief and claims about Christ. The Apostle Paul started off with great authority and great respect and great influence, and Paul gave it all up for the sake of Christ. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Use your common sense. Paul was willing to suffer at the hands of the very people he was willing to share the gospel with. Ten of the twelve apostles were martyred for their faith. Does this sound like men who are lying or making things up? Crazy, maybe. But not lying. And just to note, their kind of martyrdom was a very different than the so-called martyrs who die by way of suicide bomber today. Suicide bombers kill people as a sick and twisted expression of their faith. I'm going to do this as a way to express my faith. But the apostles and early Christians, and for that matter, Christians throughout history, have been killed because of their faith. Very different motivations. The motivation of the writers in the New Testament was pure and honest and trustworthy. Use your common sense. Those are just a few common sense evidences as to why you can trust the Bible. When you add, I think, when you add those on top of manuscript and historical and archaeological and prophetic evidence, I think you get a picture, I can't think you get a picture of a book that can be trusted. Now, all of this evidence is great. How do you answer the skeptics in your life? Maybe you've got somebody in your life right now who's asking you questions or challenging your belief in the Bible. Let me quickly give you just a few tips. Number one, first, have compassion for them and pray for them. Have compassion for them and pray for them. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Those who do not believe are blind and they're being blinded by a real enemy that the Bible calls the devil. So they cannot see the light of the gospel. They can't see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So have compassion for those who have doubts and pray for them. If someone says to you, well, I can't trust the Bible, simply respond by asking them, why not? Let them give you some of their sincere reasons so you can begin to address them in a very loving, compassionate way. Now, they may say, well, I don't believe the Bible because it's full of contradictions. Really? Which ones? Ask for them in a loving, respectful way to give you specifics. Most people who claim to say there's contradictions in the Bible, they can't give you any specifics of their own. So encourage them, again, in love and with compassion, to read the Bible for themselves before passing judgment on it. Lastly, and maybe most important, if someone is challenging your belief in the Bible, don't be afraid. 
Be strong and courageous. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and you share the good news of Jesus Christ without apology. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. See, this is why if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian or if you have doubts about the Bible, I want to say to you in love, you need to weigh the evidence. And you need to make a decision as to whether or not you're going to believe the Bible is in fact God's word. And here's why. Because your decision about the Bible has eternal consequences for you, your family, your children, and your friends. Author C.S. Lewis once wrote, if Christianity is false, it's of no importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. You cannot be lukewarm on the Bible. It is either God's word or it is not. And you need to make the decision. I want you to know, if you still have doubts about the Bible, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. This is not said in the spirit of condemnation or a spirit of judgment. I want you to know you're welcome here, but I also want you to know we are going to lovingly challenge your doubts. We want to lovingly come alongside you and say, tell us what your doubts are. We want to remove those obstacles so you can fulfill God's plan for your life. And so, if you do have some specific questions that you still have about the Bible, I want to encourage you, take some tangible steps to remove those, to answer those questions. I just scratched the surface today. There are tremendous resources. There's a list of resources on the bottom of your notes. Now, I'm going to give you one more that I don't think is on there. It's called josh.org. Josh.org is a great website. Uh, there's a couple other websites that are listed there. Josh.org is a website about Josh McDowell, a Christian author and apologist who has great resources. If you still have doubts, we'd love to talk with you. You can be, come up after service and say, hey, i got some questions. Can you help me answer some of these questions? Now, if you are a Christian and you believe the Bible is God's Word, then I want to remind you again of what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Listen, you may say, yes, I believe the Bible is God's Word. It's all Scripture is God-breathed. But listen, God's Word... God's Word is incredibly useful only if you use it. Okay? Let's not be a church family who doesn't use God's Word. Use it. Use it. God's Word is incredibly useful, but only if you use it. The Bible is such an incredible gift from our Heavenly Father to His children. Don't take that gift and not open it. Use that gift. Second Timothy says, the Bible is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Jesus says, man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's be a church family who feeds on God's word, who studies God's word, who you submit yourself and allow God's word to direct you. God wants to speak to you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to answer your questions. He wants to direct your life. And the primary way he's going to do that is through his word. Let's be a church family who gets in his word. I want to end today as the worship band comes out, I want to end by summarizing the biblical message. Here's the biblical message. The biblical message is that God created us. And he created us, and he loves us, and he wants a personal relationship with each one of us. But we've all sinned, and we've all turned away, and we've all gone our own way, and we've selfishly insisted on living life our own way. And when we've disconnected ourselves from God, it leads to sin and brokenness and death both here in this life and for all eternity. But God loved us so much that he didn't want to leave us in our brokenness and our death. 
And so he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins and mine. And that's not just a one-time decision you make. You don't just put your faith and trust in Christ and get a ticket to heaven. No, God says you turn away from living life your own way. Turn away from being the Lord and King of your life and you allow Jesus to sit on the throne of your life and you repent from sitting on the throne of your life and you put Jesus there and you follow Jesus. And you follow Jesus' example and his leadership in his life, in your life, and you follow him through, your, through the word and through prayer. And God will help you live out his design for your life but it's going to happen through the word. And God will do immeasurably more in your life than you could ever imagine, immeasurably more in your family and in your children's lives. And God wants to do immeasurably more in this church family than we can ever imagine. Let's be a people who love God's word, who stand on God's word, who live God's word, and who fearlessly, without doubt, proclaim God's word as our source of truth. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful, so thankful for the gift of your word. Lord, I pray that you would help our, you would turn our hearts, turn our hearts towards your word. Psalm 119 says, turn my heart towards your statutes, Lord. I pray you do that for our church family. I pray you do that for those sitting in the room here this morning. Do you turn our hearts towards your word, God? We want to be people who love your word. We want to take the same attitude towards your word that Jesus had. We want to live it. We want to obey it. We want to proclaim it. Lord, there are some people in this room who have doubts about your word. I pray, Father, that you use this message and maybe the coming days and coming weeks to remove some of those doubts, to answer some of those questions so that they can know your love, Jesus, so they can know the relationship that you want with them, so they can have eternal life in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.